We're going to be reading from two different scriptures this morning. So you can first turn to 1 Timothy. And we're going to be reading from chapter 1, verse 15. But we can also have our finger in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, um, chapter 2. Find that page number here in a second. So Mark, page number in your Bibles would be 837 in the Pew Bibles, and 1 Timothy would be uh, 991. So we'll be reading 1 Timothy 115 and then Mark chapter 2, 13 through 17. So let's stand as we read God's word. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Turn now with me to Mark chapter 2 as we read verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with, tax, with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You can be seated as we pray. Heavenly Father, we open up your word this morning to commune with you, to hear from you, and that's what we need. We need to see Jesus this morning. We desire to become like him. We desire to have your word mold and craft our hearts more into his image, for it to purge away from us the dross of this world and to produce Christ's likeness. So, Lord, I ask that your word would bear fruit this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today I'm somewhat functioning like, a, 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 like the tenth doctor to, in a row who confirms the diagnosis to the patient that the first doctor diagnosed to him at the start. I'm not going to... We're in a gospel series. So I'm here to amen and proclaim the same gospel... And the same message has been heralded throughout this series. And this is a message for us and for our world. Our world is apt at minimizing and deleting sin. Covering up brokenness. We want to forget it. We want to hide it. There is a prevailing air of a woke culture that invites us to a new spirit of enlightenment pointing fingers at the sinner of the past while resting in their confidence and resting on their own morality. 
while others are not fine, we are. That's the spirit of the day. We will see that this mirrors the self-righteous heart of the Pharisees in the passage we read in Mark. We are living in a time when we would rather celebrate our own achievements than humbly realize our need. And as we come to the book of Mark, in the early chapters, we find Jesus in teaching mode. And that's what we're going to do. We're just going to work through this, uh, this text in Mark. But we're actually kind of dropping into Mark in chapter 2, verse 13. But really on both sides of that and in Mark uh, chapter 2, 13 to 17, is question and answer mode. Jesus is being doubted and scorned by the religious elite of the day as they were heaping questions upon him. Question after question. But not with a heart to hear, but with a plan to discredit. The questions are rooted in earthly wisdom, but the answers are from heaven. With every answer, he is pointing to the good news. And let's just see this. Let's look with me now to chapter 2, verse 7. Here's a question from the Pharisees. Why do these men speak like that? Speaking, th this man speak like that, speaking of Jesus who just proclaimed to forgive sins. He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So there they launch a question at Jesus. Look again with me to our text, verse 16 of chapter 2. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Just drop down a little bit to verse 18. It says, Now John's disciples fasting, and the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples not fast? And again, we see a similar question in verse 24. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So again, questioning Jesus for practices or, or statements that he's making. And these questions are, again, they're not wanting to hear. But again, each answer Jesus gives in any one of those contexts is really revealing who he is and why he came. But even amidst these questions that come with scorn from the Pharisees, there were hearts present in these chapters who were open to hearing the answers that Jesus actually gave to those questions. This group represents the target audience for the good news. And we will discover this morning what qualified them. Mark reveals that many men and women were seeking out Jesus. Their step of faith was seen in their coming to Jesus. It also is an admission that there is a brokenness of spirit and a lack of true peace and rest in them. They come to him with their needs and we see that Jesus is able and willing to meet that need. So there's a large chance this morning that many of you can fit that category. That's the place you're in right now. You have such needs. Look with me to the word and let's discover and see the great physician of our soul. The one who could truly diagnose the hearts of men. He is the one revealed on the pages of Mark that has all authority. The power to heal the sick, the power to cleanse a leper, the power to cast out demons, and the power to forgive sins. He is the Son of God. So the main message of the sermon today is this. Jesus has come to save 
sinners. His arms are open to receive them. Let me say that again. The main message of the sermon is Jesus has come to save sinners. His arms are open to receive them. So our text, uh, Mark 2, 13 through 17, has two sections. And the first section, verses 13 and 15, is Jesus welcomes the lost. 13 through 15, Jesus welcomes the lost. Second section is uh, verses 16 through 17, where our point is Jesus, the great physician of the sick. So read with me with verse 13. It says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So he went out again beside the sea. This comes right off, I mean, on the heels of Jesus healing a paralytic. In that story, Jesus reveals that it is not simply a disease-riddled body, as bad as that is, that we need deliverance from the most. Rather, Jesus looked at that paralytic man who couldn't walk, and he pronounced that his heart was the issue, and that his sins were forgiven. This drew the ire of the Pharisees, leading them to pronounce that this was a blasphemous statement. But Jesus, by doing the hard thing of actually telling the man to get up and walk, show that he is indeed able to forgive sins. So again, he's going out by the sea and preaching. And the question after that story, the paralytic, is whose sins are, is he come out to forgive? And who will be the recipients of that amazing gift? We see this in verse 14 and 15. Look with me there. Look at verse 14. And he passed by, by he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Most commentators agree that Levi in, in Mark is actually Matthew. So the parallel uh, story, the account of this story, in, found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, this person is referenced as Matthew. So for the rest of the sermon, we're going we're to call Levi Matthew, because that's who he is. Whether he received a name change similar to Peter, or whether that was a middle name, we don't know. But it's pretty conclusive that this is Matthew, the writer of Matthew's Gospel. Again, Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins, and here is a mighty test. And to help us grasp the scandalous outcome of this interaction, let's first recall who Matthew was. Matthew was a tax collector. These men were the worst of the worst. If they had dartboards back then, it'd be their faces that covered the back. They were, out, they were social outcasts. And they were such because of their affiliation with those who were oppressing the Jews. Rome was the power of the day. And they ruled over Israel. They taxed heavily and exacted that tax with similar force. And they would set a tax for a certain area of their empire. And they would collect that tax through tax collectors. Now these men would actually bid to get this position. They would bid. They would say, here, I'll, I'll, I'm going to put in this wager to get this tax booth. It was a desired position because it was a way to get rich quick. So they would set up their shops in prime location and they would receive the money from their own people. They would collect it, compile it. They'd sign their name on it and they'd send it off to Rome with that money hardly ever coming back to grace the economy from which it was taken. On top of this, they were liars and cheats, cruel extortionists. 
not the type you'd voluntarily ask to handle your finances. They were able to occupy a gray area where they were allowed to kind of put their own tax on items of import and export with no one to kind of hold them accountable. So they would skim off the top and take for themselves. Simply put, these men were the scum of the village, the most unwanted of people, the people the society would just love to get rid of and to do without. One author likened them to those who during wartime would betray their own countrymen for profit. If they even stepped foot inside your home, your whole house was declared unclean. And even more astonishing than this is the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, knew Matthew and he knew everything about him. The town people knew enough to repudiate him, but how much more did Jesus know about his whole heart and everything he has ever done? Imagine that, Jesus, knowing everything you've ever done, ever thought, and ever said, it's enough to make you cringe. But it's exactly the person who Jesus had set his gaze on. So in verse 14, we see Jesus, after preaching, walking by, and he sees Matthew on the job, in the tax booth. And I wonder how the crowd would have reacted as Jesus, who it says, walked by, would have just simply turned and maybe even just spit in his general direction. It would have been received by great applause. But that's not what he did. That's not Jesus' heart towards the tax collector, Matthew. He looked at him and he said, follow me. What a scandal that must have been. He did what? He called who? Matthew? The tax collector? That's exactly what Jesus did. He called him to follow him, to come and learn from him, to come and receive the message that he preached, to leave it all behind and to follow him and to enjoy fellowship with him. This is grace. Jesus calls the most unwanted of person in that day to come to himself. What a welcome. Do we hear that? This one whose sin is the worst, Jesus calls. Do we think of Jesus like this? Is this our vision and view of Jesus? Friend of sinners? The king of those who are lowly? Friends, this is always how it's been. Jesus walked by, he looked at the tax collector and he said, follow me. God has always been reaching out first and he must. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's what Luke's gospel records. We are lost in our sin and God pursues us with the message of grace and forgiveness and fellowship. And we looked at how to receive that last week. Matthew must have realized that his life was in desperate need of help to heed this call. He must not have been blinded by the false understanding that he was somehow right with God. That he had kept enough of the traditions, kept enough of the laws. He would have heard Jesus' teaching and he would have heard the amazing proclamations that Jesus had made up till this text. He, know, he must have known what Jesus had come out to do, who he was being proclaimed to be. And he wouldn't dare turn down this call. He followed. It was instantaneous. Did you see that? In verse 14, Jesus said, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. There was, so, there was absolutely no chance of him regaining his former position. He left it all behind. He saw Jesus as far worthier, far worthier to follow 
his portion far worthier than the portion that was offered him in this life, and he left. You're not going to go to the Mandarin if you're full. You're not going to leave your life of riches unless it profit you little. You're not going to follow Jesus unless you see that you're in sin and in need of relinquishing those ways and in need of following the King and His life and message. The love and mercy of Jesus is on display as He calls and welcomes Matthew. It's no coincidence that Matthew's name means gift of God. It's no wonder that Matthew, when he wrote in his own gospel account, these words of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So hear men like Matthew say and testify to their response that my heart is sick and I need help. What is the most logical response that Matthew could have had to receiving such a gift? Look to me at verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. This is a party. This is most likely at Matthew's home. He, this is a picture of him hosting a feast and a party for Jesus. And this is him inviting, a picture of who he's inviting. He's inviting all his friends, the people that he is associated with, to come and see and share in Jesus, to hear the message that he heard. That's the logical response for receiving such a gift. You're not going to tell others about Jesus if you don't know the gift and the magnitude of the gift that you have received, the grace that you've received. And look again at verse 15. Who's at the center? And he, as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners reclined with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is at the center. Jesus and his disciples are at the center. And they're surrounded by the outcasts of the day. Jesus is reclining with those who needed to hear the message of repentance and forgiveness. They were reclining with Jesus. Meant they were there to hear from Jesus, willing to hear from Jesus. What a picture. Jesus and his followers are on mission to preach. Earlier in the book of Mark, Jesus says to preach, that's why I came out. I must go to other towns. I must go to other villages to preach. To preach the good news. And that led him to spend time with such company. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about that famous picture of the Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. And I wonder if he could, would have loved him to paint one of this scene. This picture. Jesus, not at the Last Supper, surrounded by his disciples, though that's beautiful, but one of Jesus surrounded by the outcasts of the day. Maybe even put one of those little comic book circles where Jesus is telling them about the gospel. Yeah, that, that'd be a, a, a fun picture to see. And for us, Christian, that's our call as well. Jesus was there with the disciples. We're called to take this gospel that Jesus was preaching to the ends of the earth, to go out to those in need and proclaim it, to go and live lives of discipleship at home and abroad. 
Jesus' disciples were there listening to Jesus, watching Jesus. Watch how, listen to what he preached. Watch to where he did it. I think of an illustration of a child. A child, a child is going to look like their parents. So the disciples of Jesus will look like Jesus. And they will go to the places where Jesus went. They will walk like Jesus walked. So Jesus is pictured here as welcoming, not condoning, but welcoming sinners and sharing a meal with them and teaching them. So that leads us to our second point. And these are verses 16 and 17. The point here is Jesus, the great physician of the sick. Let's just read those verses again. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here Jesus reveals for all to know his purpose. His purpose of coming out. His purpose is saving the sick, the sinner. In these verses, we get a glimpse of what the tax collectors and those collected around the table, the outcasts of society, would have heard when they dined with Jesus. It's a message that should comfort all those who believe, all those who are burdened under sin's cruel mastery. Verse 16 reveals that his association was also quite a scandal, not just for the people of the town, but for the religious leaders of the day. These religious leaders are those who kept the law and the traditions down to the most minute detail. And they cannot believe that Jesus, who was a good, who was a, known as a great teacher, could be doing something different. They could not believe that he was eating and fellowshipping with such an unclean group of people. Jesus was supposed to be a great teacher of the law, and yet here he is acting out of hand in their eyes. See, they were the, known as the separatists, those who drew away for the sake of cleanliness, so committed that they would not ever think of coming into unnecessary contact with people such pictured in, verses 15, in verse 15. They wouldn't think of it, for they cared little of their traditions and the laws. You can even feel the distance in the text. They said to him, why? Why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? These are the righteous up on the 59th floor, looking down on those who are in, on the ground level or even beneath in the sewer. Such a distance. These men would not touch these people with a 10-foot pole. And they thought Jesus should be doing the same. Should be doing the same. The suffocating traditions of these Pharisees, this is what's sad. It actually kept them from sharing the message of the scriptures that they were supposed to know so well. Had God not always revealed his heart for the lowly in those scriptures in the Old Testament? Had God not always said, I'm going to come and bind up the brokenhearted? That I will not bruise? A, a, a bent reed or, or, or quench a smoldering wick. That's, the message of the Old Testament is clear. To bind up the brokenhearted. But they concluded that Jesus, if he was truly righteous, he would simply be scolding them, standing apart from them, launching judgment as they had done. Jesus reveals a great truth when he teaches them in verse 17. 
Jesus hears this. So he hears the question of the Pharisees given to his disciples. And he gives them a simple proverbial truth as the answer. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, that's pretty standard stuff. Pretty common sense then and now. But he followed this up by stating that he came out not to call those who are righteous, but sinners. And this is the great scandal. The glorious message of the gospel is not for those who think they're fine, those who are okay, those who have no need, but for those who have great need, a desperate need, a need for help, those who are sick, those who are lost in sin. Jesus came for them. That's what he's declaring. Rather, if you think you're fine, you'll never run to Jesus. For Jesus says they have no need of a physician. And when he says those who are righteous, he's saying those who are in a heart posture of self-righteousness. Those who have built up a little wall around them of works, merit. They have no need for the physician. So Jesus, by saying this, is saying something powerful. He did not just to come, out, come out. He did not just come to earth to correct some behavioral quirks. He did not come out simply to add or slightly enhance the teaching of the day. He did not come out to be simply a good teacher or a good example. He did not come out at this time even to bring in the fullness of the kingdom, to overthrow the enemy of Rome, but rather to be the physician of the soul, to heal the sick, to heal the sinner, to deal with the gaping wounds left by sin. So the Pharisees saw in themselves little need. But for those who have great need, they just won the lottery with that message. They have just heard that Jesus' whole purpose was coming up to save the sick, to save them, to save the outcast. That's the heart posture that he draws to. To the self-righteous, he can help them not. Now this was, even though I say that, also an invitation to those Pharisees. One that revealed their sin of self-righteousness. One that is meant to correct their thinking. And also show them that once they ask for forgiveness, they can run to Jesus. Once they see their need, Jesus is also for them. So from this passage, one author summed it up beautifully. He said, no sick soul is too far gone from him. No sick soul is too far gone for Jesus. If you're here today and you're tempted to maybe say that I am too far gone, you don't know me, you don't know the depth of my sin, you don't know my past, you don't know my history, you don't know what I did yesterday, friend, there is no soul so sick that is too far gone for Jesus. It's a beautiful message for us today as well. This same heart posture for sinners that saves sinners is the same heart posture that God meets every day with grace for those who look to Him. Here today, that not, sin, that not a sin-sick soul is too far from Jesus. He says so Himself. And whether we believe it or not, we all qualify. We all qualify in this area. All are lost. All are broken. All are in sin. Everyone needs to hear this healing touch, for we have all sinned. 
We have all forsaken God and loved other things. And this is really the scandal of the gospel. In Romans 5, it says, For those who work, their wages are not a gift. And then it compares, it's the ungodly who have faith that God justifies. Those who don't do a work, those who just simply look to Jesus. God justifies the ungodly. The only necessary prerequisite for receiving the healing hand of Jesus is knowing your desperate need for Him and calling upon His name. This is the truth from the mouth of our Lord. And it was echoed again later in Scripture. We read it at the beginning. 1 Timothy 1.15 And amazingly, it's given by a, a past Pharisee. One who had, if there was any confidence to have in the flesh, he would have had it. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was as zealous as they come. One who would have boasted in his blamelessness, now boasts in Christ. Now boasts in his lowliness. Now he can't wait to tell people, I'm still the chief of sinners. And I know the Savior who saves sinners. And he says that is worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In closing, let's remember that Jesus is the one who came out and fellowshiped with the outcasts, with the broken. He didn't isolate himself. And while never being complicit in, in, in sin, he spent time with the lowly to teach them. It was part of his mission. And it's our mission as well, for we have been brought into that mission as a church. We need to meet this world with the glorious news of Jesus, and we need to go to them. I once asked a friend, what is the essence of Christianity? And while there could be a few different answers, he said this, quoting him, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. To say this, we need to continually see ourselves as unworthy recipients of God's grace. To see us as the tax collector, the outcast that God called, that received God's grace. That's what needs to permeate our own hearts, to permeate our church. That's the, that's the heart posture, that's the cry that is the fuel for evangelism, radical hospitality. Acts of humility and forgiveness and service of others. When we can only do those things when we really truly recognize that we, we too are the chief of sinners. So let's pray that this would be the message of our church and manifest it in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at Jesus, our Savior, that he came down, took on flesh, and he met our need by dying on the cross, by paying for the penalty that our sins deserved, by bearing that on his shoulders on the cross, and paying the penalty for it. We rejoice that he has cleansed us of our sins by his blood. And we rejoice now that we can take that gospel message out to others, that if they see their need and call upon him, they could be saved. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the tender embrace that we receive from you today. New mercies every morning. So Lord, help us and train us by this very gospel to say with David, have mercy upon me, a sinner. To say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners. 
and to look to you daily for grace in faith. Amen.